Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a first-time filmmaker's journey. I am your host, Josh Lindsay from the Movie Proposal Podcast. And with us is our first-time filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hello there. Happy to be here. Hello, Christian Taylor, wearing your Girl Who Wore Freedom t-shirt. Yes, you can get that on thegirlwhowarefreedom.com slash shop. All right. And also with us is the guy we could not do this without, Jason Rugg. Hey there. Man, you look clean shaven. <laughs> yeah, I got a I got a beard trimmer and I thought that the three setting was uh mm. well I thought it was, you know, it leaves a little bit. Turns out it was an M for my no more beard. So I just kinda <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoops. All right. I, I have I have nightmares about like accidentally shaving giant pieces <laughs> off of my goatee off or whatever. I'm like, oh, now I have to hold, shave the whole thing off. And then I wake up and go, oh, it's still there. <laughs> Josh, I can't fathom what you would look like. It's been so long since I've seen you without your goatee. It, it's only been five years. Yeah, but I can't even remember what you were like before. That's crazy. Yeah, I've only I'll known you with a goatee. Oh, oh, really? Speaking of which, Jason, Josh found, and we're going to have to put this up on our website or something on social media. Josh found a picture of... Me, him, and Hunter in front of a microphone doing some sort of radio thing. And it was like in, what did we decide it was? Like 2002 or something? Well, I don't know the, about the year, but definitely, I think it came with an age for Hunter. Like, wasn't he... 10 preteen or okay, yeah, yeah 10 or 11 so and that was josh texted it to me in like our very first podcast experience you know and i was like <laughs> oh my gosh that's so funny it's no pretty, goatee then so. no goatee then that's true i'll have to go back and remember what you look like well i Christian, uh, yeah you need to update us update us on the film yeah, I will do that. But I do want to tell you one thing. I got an email, you guys, from a listener. Thank you, Jim, who really said one of the things that we needed to do is get you guys to share more a little bit about yourselves. So I'll give you a thumb update, but I'm going to just plug that little idea into your head so that after my film update, you can share a little bit about what's going on in your own projects. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. Okay. So things are moving along with the film in a really positive way. We announced last time that we have distribution through Factory Film Studios. So we are really excited about that. We hope that pretty soon they will make a public announcement about, uh, you know, representing us or distributing us. And then, you know, the next thing that we we're going to now start uploading all these distribution deliverables and i have a much better idea of all the different things that they need and we should definitely do a podcast that's dedicated just to that and then um you know then we'll be waiting to hear what deals they make uh, with different outlets so the plan is to release our film around d-day this year and their job is to go forward and try to first sell it in, you know, to broadcast, you know, outlets like the History Channel, you know, ones in North America and ones in Canada. And so that's sort of the next news we'll be waiting for. What kind of deals are they going to make? So that's exciting. That, yeah, that's super exciting. And then uh, since we talked last, we have been to Montana. And, uh, you know, we were at the 
uh, Chandler International Film Fest, where we got the Best Woman Filmmaker Award. And then we came home for like three days, I think, and got back on a plane, flew to Polson, Montana, which is in the northwest corner of Montana. It's a beautiful place uh, where I fully understood why they call it the Big Sky State, because every time I take a picture of anything in Montana, all you see is this huge, giant sky and you know some <laughs> other little mountains and things. So it was a fascinating time. The film festival is run by David and Jessica King. Uh, they're a sweet couple who uh, just really love independent film. He used to work at Disney. He's been a screenwriter. He's had a, they've had films of their own and they just really love good quality films. And so uh, there were 12 filmmakers actually that were there, which was the most film festival uh you know, participation we've seen from filmmakers, a lot of really good movies um, that, you know, I actually have asked some of those filmmakers to come on our show and talk to us about their films. So that was great. And we were just thrilled to win the best documentary feature award as well Ooh. as um, the audience award, which I'm super proud of because wow. uh, the the films were very great, and yet we we won the audience award across the board, and that's you know shorts and feature narrative features and doc features. So that was awesome. incredible. Yeah. And then while we were there, we found out that we were accepted into the Thin Line Film Fest, which is in Texas. And I think that's going to be happening in March. And we were also accepted into the um, the Port, Port Townsend, Washington Women and Film Film Festival. And that one's going to be in April. And then we heard that we are still a finalist in the Ferrera Film Festival and that it's going to be in person in May. Um, so that was new news that we got this week. And um, one big project we've been working on is thanks to Sam King and our video department, he's working on the closed caption files. We had to pay to have the closed captions done, but then we have had to edit them and tweak them to make sure they're correct. Um, so that's been taking us some time. That's one of our, our deliverables. So that's what's been happening on our end. Hunter has been busy working on a super cool um, donation uh, idea. He is developing these uh, challenge coins that we're going to have to give people at different levels. And we're really, really close. So we're about to order the very first coins. And then we're going to put together a video to explain, uh, you know, the history of the coins and what it means for our donors and things like that. So uh, we're still desperately in need of funding to keep us going month to month. Um, we don't have any funding for March. So uh, we've got to come up with some ideas. So that's all the update from here. Plenty of time. It's the beginning of February. It's like you have so much time for March. It's like <laughs> it's like a year away. So I don't know. Feels a little intense, <laughs> if you ask me. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that's what's happening with me, Josh. You know what's been happening on the movie proposal podcast? What what do you have? What did you do last week, or what do you have coming up this week? Well, the biggest thing. I'm not sure if we announced it last time is we're about to do our hundredth episode. Oh, you are. Yeah. Yes. We, we only do maybe two podcasts a month. It's not weekly. It's maybe two a month. So we've been, we've been 
going longer than documentary first, but at a slower pace than documentary first. So we're, we're hitting our hundredth episode about the same time, which is fun. We don't have any ideas. I keep suggesting ideas to Jason and Sky, <laughs> and they they just ignore me. And uh, we did get one person suggest because our, our we have this weird wedding theme. Yeah, why don't you just new. remind people of that? Well, so it's a segment. Every every episode you listen to, we there's f- basically four segments: something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. If you're not familiar with that, that's a wedding thing where I think the bride wears something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. That's correct. Sky was at a wedding the week before we discussed this podcast. And he's like, let's do this. I'm like, sure, why not? And (laughs) it's stuck. But it's actually a great format. So we talk about an old movie, a new movie. We usually bring in a person or an article that we, quote, borrow related to the something new. And then uh, something blue, which is not blue the color, but blue our minds or blue chunks. Something we saw recently that we recommend you watch or recommend you stay away from. It's It's been a lot of fun for me anyway. I love to talk about movies. And ever since college, all my movie talking buddies now are scattered to the wind. And I really don't have anyone to do that with. Sky and Jason have been phenomenal movie discussion partners. And apparently a few people like to listen to us rant about it, which has been fun. Yeah, it's been super fun. It was especially eye-opening when I went to Washington, D.C. last fall and they heard that I was there, but I knew you and they really wanted to talk to you because they were fans of the movie proposal. So that was super exciting. So tell me what last episode covered, if you will. This is when we go to Jason. What did we do last time? <laughs> I, oh, Wonder Woman. I, I can't hear you for some reason, Jason, but uh, I don't know. Can you hear Jason, Christian? Nope. Nope. Okay. Um, well, we did Wonder Woman 1984, which none of us liked. So it was a lot of fun to talk about and is that the old Tear one? Apart. So you talked about the new Wonder Woman. Then you talked yes. about the old Wonder Woman. No. No. Wonder Woman 84. That's what it's called. Oh, that's the new one? Yeah, because here, this is, this is it's the sequel. And Wonder Woman, WW, and often they'll, they'll come up with like, you know, little acronyms, if you will. You know, like uh, T2 for Terminator 2. Right. Wonder Woman 2 would be ww2 so it would look like world war ii which wouldn't make any sense right and they decided to make this film in 1984 so it's ww84 anyway that's their but it's the sequel to the first wonder woman so it just came out like it just came out a month or two ago okay and so uh what was your old one uh, Sky said Superman 2. Oh, I said Terms of Endearment. <laughs> so you both could come with an old movie that's not the same. Oh, yeah. Everyone more or less comes with their own opinions and movies they want to talk about and share that. And we're, we just do a lot of reminiscing, a lot of sharing fond memories of films or bashing films. Uh, but also I think, I think what I appreciate about the, about this, this isn't just a critique of films, why it was good, why it was bad. It's also speaking to, you know, like as a father, things will, things will stand out to me. And so I might speak about that, you know, how 
this particular Marvel film remind me of, you know, what it means to be a father. And so we'll talk about fatherhood or something, you know, so it's, it's, it's fun in that way because it's not just the directing was terrible because da, 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 right. right? It, it, we're, we're not that well-versed in filmmaking to be film critics. We just like to talk about movies. Well, and <laughs> what, I, what I do think is what I do think is great about that. Honestly, though, especially in the borrowed part, you'll bring borrowed things that I haven't heard of or that I haven't seen before from the past. Um, not borrowed, the old. And yeah. so I, I I just highly recommend people listen to that. So you can find it on any of your strut podcast streaming platforms. And I noticed also you have a segment of the website at the Holy Post. So holypost.com, there's a movie proposal tab that, you know, goes and you can get some more information. So Jason, are you back online? Can we hear you? Can you? Yes. Am I here? Yes. Hey, okay. Yeah. I just had to reset my mic. I don't know why I, well, I was unmuted, but you can hear me. <laughs> welcome back. So you've, you've got some projects in the pipeline we've talked about before, and our audience would really like to hear a little bit more about what's going on with you creatively. Yeah. Um, so We've got a couple different things that we're working on, and um, right now we've decided to try to apply to get into the uh, Warner Brothers uh, Television uh, Screenwriting uh, Fellowship, I think is what it's called. I don't know. It's got a whole long name, and they recently changed it, and I don't remember exactly what it is. Um, so we're working on spec scripts, which um, a spec script is a fascinating little term because it means a different thing if it's made for a movie and it means a different thing if it's made for a TV show. So we're writing a spec script for a television show, which is you take an existing show and you write an episode of it as if you were on that show, you're working on that show, you write an episode of it. So we're going to write an episode of Ted Lasso is what we've, what we've decided to do. So we've been working on outline and we've been watching all the episodes and making notes about, okay, so this is what we know about this character. That's what we know about that character. I have a whole huge long note about um, just different things that are just little mentions here and there. And you're trying to build a mythology of a character and try to, to weave those in. So that's, that's what we've been working on. Um, this last month a lot. Um, but we've also been writing our own um, script, which is called Max Shepard, which is a pretty fun little project. We're excited about that. Um, we just finished up what we're calling version two of that um, and sent that off to some friends uh, in the industry to see if, see what they think of it. See, see if they want to pass it to anyone or, or um, you know, cause that, that's, that's a big thing as a writer. What you try and do is you try to write something, pass it off to someone who, is in the industry. And then if they like it, they'll pass it on to some of their agents and managers that happened with our last project. People passed off our, our teaser that we'd made for this, this little show and all the agents and managers that went to were like, nah, not for me, which is like, yeah, that's fine. That's part of the process is just getting in front of people and then rejecting you. That's just <laughs> a huge part of it. So that's, that's where we are right now. It's sort of the Christian same. Christian has no idea what you're talking about. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> sort of the story of my life. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Jason, we're going to continue to follow your adventures. Uh, when do you submit your thing to that program, that fellowship? Uh, we've got until I think it's June. Uh, we've got quite a ways. And we're actually going to try and write two scripts. So this is the first one we're trying to write. And we're trying to decide what the second one is going to be. So cool. Yeah, well, we will uh, we'll keep following that progress. That's awesome. All well, right. Uh, you guys, we have some something exciting today. We have a guest. We haven't even talked about that yet, but she's uh, been hiding off camera. And I'm going to let you introduce her, Josh. Oh, I want to make sure. I, oh, there she is. 
Here Michelle she Phoenix, welcome Thank to you. Documentary First. Uh, the reason Michelle is here is she is the translator for The Girl Who Wore Freedom. Uh, quickly, uh, what I think makes her qualified to be a translator is that she was born and raised in France, but she has citizenship in three different countries, which we learned is a thing. So congratulations on that. And I, I, I guess you work, I don't know if it's full-time, but you work in missions, which is pretty cool. And you are an author. So welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. Uh, we really haven't investigated much this uh, translation piece of The Girl Who Wore Freedom. And it's a super complicated little piece. Um, so, you know, I feel like we do need to unpack it and how we got you know, how you got involved and what it entails. So people that uh, have been involved know that we're a dual language project and that's complicated things a lot. But it it really began when I went in 2017 to France and I had not thought through the translation process at all until I was trying to talk with a French person on camera and realized that this process is not as easy as I thought, and I really knew I needed to make a decision. There were some of them that spoke English. Should I have them speak in English? Should I have them speak in French? Do we have them say something and someone translate on camera? Like, how does this work? And so I did record some initial footage, and in the footage we have us usually Flo Boucherie or Michelle Coupe, who are co-producers, we had them translating whatever was being said. And I would just ask the questions. Well, that doesn't make such for such great TV. Um, and one day I received a message in the mail, which said, uh, I am a follower of the Holy Post and I've, you know, familiar with your documentary. If I can ever help, let me know. And that was you, Right. It was. And I was just thinking if you have, you know, an, a, an article or a document that you need translated, just, you know, shoot me a PDF and I'll take care of that. And so what <laughs> happened? What is the rest of the story? The rest that of the story. And then what happened? Well, it turns out that we live about 10 minutes down the road from each other. So that was made things a lot easier from there. Um, I was, I was, as you said, listening to the Holy Post a lot. I'm, I'm a devoted fan and hearing you talking about this World War II project. And I was born and raised in France. In fact, the, um, the school that I attended when I was little, they had a special program going. It was actually a Red Cross rehab center for children with um, some kind of physical ailments. And they had asked children from the village to join them. And that school was housed in an old manor house that the Nazis had taken over in World War II and transformed into a baby factory, transformed into something they call um, Lebensborn, a spring of life. So they would bring women who had been impregnated voluntarily in this case, in the rest of Europe, it was not this way, but it was, it was SS soldiers who were trying to propagate the race. And they would bring the women to this beautiful manor that was now a Red Cross center. It had been a chocolatier's estate before the war. Um, and these babies would be born and then farmed out to high-ranking Third Reich families around France and around Europe. And as I was growing up in this situation in this town that had been occupied by the German forces for 
several years. I never knew the story of what had happened in this manor house. And it was only when I was researching, I think my second novel that actually is the story of the spring of life, um, that I discovered all of this history that nobody in town ever spoke of, even though many of them had been alive at the time for obvious reasons. So you start talking about a World War II project and that kind of gets my interest peaked, especially because after leaving France, going to college in the States, I moved back to Germany and taught for 20 years in Germany. So I had a foot in each of these countries that are represented in a big way in the part of the war that the girl who wore freedom covers. So I wrote you, um, you said, well, why don't you come over to my house? So I came over to your house and you started showing me this footage that you had done, I think on an iPhone, was it Was it just kind of simpler had, footage? Yeah, we had some on an iPhone and we had shot some on a Canon uh, right. 5. And it was really just to see yeah. if these characters were compelling. Were they yeah. comfortable on camera? I was never really intending to use any of it. But Right. So I'm watching this and, and I'm hearing you asking the question of the French person and then somebody translated translates it into French for you. And then the French person in a very French way gives you this long-winded, beautiful answer. And I'm imagining your face, because at that time you didn't speak as much French as you do now, um, your face probably looking very blank and pleasant, but not giving them immediate feedback for the details that they were giving you. And then when they were done speaking 10 minutes of translation and then you could ask your next question. So as we sat there and looked at your laptop that day, I wondered out loud if it would be possible to have a simultaneous system set up so that one person who speaks both languages can simultaneously translate your question, then flip and translate the French response into English into your ear and then go back and forth that way. And you put it to your team and they created a system that would work. Well yeah, what I think I did first was say, oh my gosh, you're completely right about that. And one of the ways you convinced me was you explained to me that an interviewee will, in a sense, bond with the people that they're speaking with. And right. they're, um, and so what I was noticing is that when a French person was speaking with a French person there and they were having eye contact, that interaction, really the interesting facial expressions and the interesting stuff was going on between the French person and not so much with me. Right. And so you're, you began saying, you know, would it be possible for, um, you know, to do what they do at the UN and have somebody simultaneously translating in your ear from an undisclosed location, from a hidden location, so the right. interviewee only bonds with you? And I was like, oh, my gosh. You're right. You're coming with us to Normandy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not only that. It's also that if they're telling you a story of this traumatic event that they witnessed and you're not understanding them, you're smiling pleasantly at them, but you're not encouraging them to really relive it because you're not giving them that facial feedback of, oh, I'm with you. I'm feeling you. I'm compassionate. So, yeah. So you said, can you go to France? And I said, well, let me look at my calendar. And sure enough, I had two and a half weeks free that I could take off and go on the trip of a lifetime. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I think was fascinating that I learned over the course of time, I mean, I then went to research what kind of equipment we would need mm -hmm. to make this possible. And it was way too expensive, like out of our range as an independent film production. And so we began thinking outside of the box of how could we do this with you? Um, 
and do it in an inexpensive fashion. And mm-hmm. I give all the credit to Terry, John, and Corey Lillard and Jason Hoban, who all kind of worked together to figure this out. And I think we came up with a system that maybe cost 30 bucks. Yeah. And it was these tiny little earpieces that had that were wireless. And we used a microphone that was wireless. And we used a um we used like a uh a, a wireless um mic little trans I don't know what are they called it's like a I don't know. transmission do you know Jason what I'm talking about just a transmitter yeah a transmitter that's it a transmitter <laughs> you make and it sound so, so easy Jason <laughs> <laughs> and so we would put um we would hide Michelle uh, somewhere close by because the wireless stuff all had to work. We would give the interviewee an earpiece and I would have an earpiece and I would ask the question and Michelle would translate it into the earpiece of the French person while I was asking it. And then as the French person would answer me, she would then translate to me probably only two or three seconds behind the time. And the trick was on my little transmitter, I had two buttons and one button I clicked to talk to Christian and one button I clicked to talk to the interviewee. And I had to keep those buttons flying back and forth during these interviews as well. It was, it was, it was a challenge for my brain that I loved. It was exhilarating at the same time because I had to keep the technology straight and be thinking at the speed French people speak, which is really rapidly and translating in a way that then you would be able to respond immediately to what they were saying. Well, and there's another level too that people don't think about because words don't line up exactly, particularly yes. where the French and English are concerned. The French have more words to convey an an idea or a story than we would use. So in Michelle's brain, she had to not translate word for word. She had to translate ideas into my language to, so she's making quick decisions on the fly. And the thing that was so interesting to me about Michelle, I'd had another translator and even during principal photography, uh, Michelle would switch off with another translator Michelle is uniquely qualified, in my opinion, because her brain works really fast. And she's able to, in a second, uh, translate things very, very quickly and switch back and forth between the two languages. And if you have someone that's not as fluent as Michelle, it is much more difficult to do that kind of switching. Um, So for first-time filmmakers, I think that's really important for you to understand. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the the person is key. They have to be technically proficient to make a system like this work. They have to be able to be very proficient in both languages. And And that not only has to happen mentally in your brain where you're making those translations, but out your mouth as well. You were a quick speaker. And so you know, you made that very seamless. And I don't think I realized that fully until we went back in 2019 and we had dinner with Jean-Marie and and Danny, do you remember, on a Sunday lunch, um, and Bill Ebel came with us. And I was just doing my thing, sitting at the table, translating this ping pong of a conversation that was just racing around the table. And I looked at Bill and his eyes were huge and he was just staring like, is this really happening in real time? And for me, it was just, you know, calisthenics, just having more linguistic fun with the situation. Yeah, Bill had yet to ever go over to Normandy, <laughs> and so that was a like right. you know baptism by fire for him. Right. Um, I think 
you know, I'd love for you to talk about the very first time that we put this technology in practice in, in real life, because we had it all worked out in America, but it's a wholly different thing yes. when you travel across the country and you're setting up, trying to set up quickly. What happened at that first interview with Henri Jean Renault? Are you, are you, it's all, yeah, you're thinking of Henri Jean Renault. Yes. Well, that, that goes down as my quirkiest memory from our translating. We got there, we set up, this was my first time on a documentary crew. So I was amazed by everything that went into it, the lighting and, you know, everything. And we got ready to start the interview and realized that our system wasn't up and running yet, <laughs> that it hadn't been all put together on that side of the ocean. So here we are doing our first official interview. You're sitting, this man is the former mayor of St. Marie-Glise, right? Is that correct? Yes, Bob was the mayor of St. Mary Glee and right. he and his brother have sort of been carrying on their yes. tradition, uh, just very, very powerful. And, you know, you're on a time, yeah, you're on a time deadline too. It's not like yes. you can pussyfoot around here. You know, you got things scheduled <laughs> and lined up all day and right. our equipment didn't work. And so this is, this is what Ken Burns says all the time when you're making a film you have to solve a million problems yeah. you have to solve them quickly and that's what we had to do in that moment so michelle is like well and be flexible always yeah. which was the theme of my former job so you sat down in your chair and I sat down. I mean, my face was in your hair right behind yeah. you. And I'm whispering as quietly as I can this beautiful interview about this man who has not only memories of the war, but then all the veterans that he's hosted over all these decades since then. And I don't know, did you have to, did you have to edit out some of my, my sounds when yeah, you did the first I mean, we, we had to edit out me completely. So, I mean, that's that right. Worked that worked. Um, now, and retrospectively, you know, the most important thing is that you were hidden and they weren't connecting with you and they weren't hearing you because you right. weren't engaging with me. It right. only worked for Henri Jean because he spoke English. Yes. Yeah. Because he then understood my questions and you weren't yes. having to translate for him really. Right. Uh, there were times where he had a few questions and you could just speak up and explain. Right. Um, but yeah, we had to be flexible and in the end it did, it did work, but a lot of it was quick thinking on your part. And I give you yeah. a lot of kudos for that. It was fun. It was a challenge. So Josh and Jason, what are you thinking? I mean, do you have any other questions to ask her regarding those things before we keep going? Well I'm still stuck on the baby factories. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, that was that was quite a start. <laughs> yeah, wasn't it? Pick up Tangled Ashes on Amazon.com. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's your book. It's called Tangled Ashes. That's the previous one on World War II. Yeah. Okay. That covers the baby factory. Yes. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It actually, so, I, I need to, I need to amend that. It covers the the baby factory in the past part of the novel. In the present part of the novel, they're refurbishing the mansion and the castle, and they're finding hints as to what happened in the past. So it doesn't just dwell in the baby factory. <laughs> gotcha. Um, you you mentioned um, you you were talking about just stories and so forth. And you mentioned your quirkiest one. You, you mentioned you had a, you know just kind of an emotional one. I wonder if yeah. you could share that story. Yeah, we were with um, Charles de Valavier. Um, he owns Brecourt Manor, where famously Band of Brothers had their first really big combat trying to take over an artillery, uh, a battery there of, of pretty big machine guns. Um, and he had walked our film crew out into the fields where this happened. And I was, as as Christian said, I was quite a bit back so that 
he was connecting with her and not with me, the translator. And he was telling the story about um, the memories of his father who was shot um, during the war. And um, and you had Jake with you, Christian. Jake must have been right up next to you at that point. And at one point, Charles starts, starts talking about um, a young German soldier that um, the family had connected to a little bit because he was more scared and they caught him crying sometimes. I think he was maybe 17 years old, as I remember. And he's talking about the soldier. Um, and I'm translating. And, and just trying to remain intellectual about this. And then I hear you say something about Jake is in tears. And so I, in my translation, start to cry as well. So I'm kind of blubbering the translation into your ear. And then I could hear your voice cracking. And it just, there's something about hearing a historic moment of in a human context, in a feet on the ground, in the grass, among the trees context that really brought it to life in such a heartbreaking way. And I love that this first moment of real emotion for me was about the German young man, about the 17-year-old man who was forced into the army probably, was combating in lands that were not familiar to him, that were not home to him, that probably just wanted to leave. Um, and he was caught up in this battle that took so many lives. Well, I think that's why it's so beautiful for me that they bring the Germans back every year for D-Day as well as the other nations. Yeah. And that was so tragic because he was killed. He was. Yeah. And, and, you know, they had, they had seen his vulnerability and his youth. And I think, you know, that was what was so interesting to me, the grayness of the relationship between the Germans and the French in Normandy, because as they would say, the Germans were correct. They didn't want to be there either. They were either the young soldiers or the old men or the wounded. They wanted to be all be back home and they didn't have a choice. They were caught up in this war. And that was not the only moving moment you had. Another one that I remember witnessing was when we were uh, at the soldier dinner town hall, when they were going to divide up all the soldiers to go home with the French people to have dinner. Um, You saw an old French man trying to communicate with Willie Kellerman, one of our veterans. Tell us a little bit about that story. That was our first event, our very first event. It was in Saint-Mérie-Glise. The mayor had spoken. These gentlemen, these uh, veterans were going to be um, sent out to various families. And at the end, when people were just gathering around, I saw this very elderly old man. I found out he was 88, I think, at the time. Drop a chair next to Willie Kellerman, who speaks not a word of French, um, and start talking to him. And there were tears on his face, and he had no teeth. And so he was trying to make himself understood in a language the other man didn't understand without being able to correctly pronounce things anyway. And uh, and Willie just was so sweet and was holding his hand and patting his hand. And I thought, I've got to help this communication happen. So I got down on my knees in front of them um, and translated back and forth. And this French gentleman was telling the story of D-Day when he saw two paratroopers land in his small village, um, Saint-Côme-du-Mont, you know where that is. Um, and, and the paratroopers were under such heavy fire that they found refuge in this man's home when he was a child. And then Willie started telling his story of um, landing. I, was he Utah Beach? I can't remember where yeah. it was that he landed. Yeah. yeah. And then he was taken by the Germans and he managed to escape during a march. And, and these two men who have never met each other before sat there holding hands and looking into each other's faces with tears and just telling 
disconnected stories, but so viscerally connected to each other because it had all happened at the same time in their lives. And I remember at the end of that, that's the first time that I went up to you. I had no idea what I was getting into when I said yes to this. And I remember going up to you in the lobby afterwards with tears in my eyes and going, thank you so much. Thank you for allowing me to be here for this. Yeah, it was such a, um, you were in the right place at the right time and uh, you were able to give a gift. And I saw that happen over and over again. The other one I'm thinking about is when we were at the uh, the Exodus, we were filming the Exodus yeah. and the uh, the march that sort of went over, um, oh, what's that, the bark? Uh, La Barquette. La Barquette, yeah, we were filming that. And you were, they then marched into the town of Carentan and you saw yet another very old man sitting on the side just weeping. Tell us about yeah. old Frenchman. I think that's the most impactful encounter of my time there. And it was not planned. We were watching, uh, I think it's about 400 reenactors um, march from Utah Beach through the fields to the town of Carentan. And then they have this big procession through the town center with the Jeeps leading them. And um, your part of the crew was off on another assignment that day. And I was in Carentan with my camera, just taking pictures. I took pictures of everything during this time. Um, and I was waiting for them to march up the street. And I looked down and somebody had pulled up a folding chair and helped this um, 80, 93 year old gentleman into the chair. And because I'm always taking pictures, I turned around and tried to take a picture of him. And he looked at me and he said, you're taking a picture of me. And he kind of seemed angry. So I got down again next to him and I said, you know, I, I would love to know more about you. And his name is Albert. And as these, um, French and German and Dutch and all nationalities, men dressed as American soldiers are marching up the street in front of him. He is weeping. I have video of it actually. And his hands are shaking and he's telling me his life story of when he remembers being liberated and of what life was like during the occupation of carrying grain, uh, bags of grain on his shoulders that weighed as much as he did because the Germans told him that he had to get them from point A to point B for no apparent reason, just to make this young. I think he was um, in his early teens or late teens at the time of the war. So again, this unscripted, unplanned thing to get to kneel at the feet of this man who passed away now three months ago, I'm sad to say, um, and to hear his story. And just there's something with him and with the veterans, there's something about looking into their faces while they are uttering these sentences that are unthinkable to those of us who are living today in America. And to see the emotions that kind of wash over their faces and to see their eyes reliving it, it's just... It's an incomparable experience. And Albert was one of those for me. He brought home the fact that the French had so suffered until the liberation. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, what makes this such a challenge for a translator like yourself is that if you're at the UN and you're translating back and forth, it's just factual information. Mm -hmm. But here you are seeing people's faces and you are having to manage doing a job. But there is no way you cannot feel that emotion. And so you're having to manage that emotion. And I think for you, it's even more powerful because of, you know, your own history and what right. you bring to the project. The one thing that I found, I used to think when I first started interviewing uh, and doing this film that I was such a horrible, um, you know, interviewer. Because I would get so invested emotionally mm -hmm. in the story and I would cry or get emotional. And I used to see that as a weakness. Mm -hmm. And what I then know, looking back at the footage, is that 
actually that wasn't, that worked in our favor because I was free with my emotion. They gave emotion back to me and that translated on camera. Absolutely. Um, but it, it's a lot of stuff to manage, you know, when you're in the moment and it's kind of intense. So is there anything else you learned uh, while you were there that you would do differently or that you wish you had or that you wish you would have known? Um, not really, actually. I think it took us a little while to get into our, our rhythms. Um, but by the time, I mean, within two or three days, we had figured out the sound system and everything else. and. Um, No, it was such a magical two and a half weeks for me on so many different levels. Um, And there's just so much that is that is just engraved in my memory that will never go anywhere. And I came back and I had to put a couple of photo books together with all the stories that I had heard, even the anecdotal ones. When you're just passing somebody at the Colville-sur-Mer Cemetery, which is the Normandy American Cemetery, um, and translating for the school children who were there. So this is something we didn't expect either. The school children come to meet veterans, um, not on D-Day, a few days before D-Day, because these school children have helped to finance their trips overseas. So this is kind of their meet and greet with these veterans. And, and they're all instructed to ask questions. Well, the veterans don't speak French, they don't speak English. So I got to be in the center of these circles with a couple veterans on one side and these French school kids on the other, and to translate back and forth for this generation that is French today because of those veterans, for this generation to be able to hear their words from them. And one of the kids at the very end asked, I think it might have been Willie, um, asked him, what did you learn? What what have you learned through the war? And Willie answered, we learned how to die over here, but we never learned how to live. And that is something that just whew, took the breath out of my lungs for a minute. And the other memorable one at Colville for me, the other memorable moment was seeing a bunch of active duty soldiers that were sitting on a wall, young women and men who were visiting that day. And I went up to them and I'm very bold in Normandy. I'm not usually this bold, but it feels like I have this moment. So I went up to them and I asked them, what does it feel like for you to be watching these veterans and these French children um, gathering together? And I think it's the woman in the group who said, it's telling these men who really saved the world, it's telling them that we've got the watch. We've got the watch. And again, those are the words that anchor deep. Yeah, it certainly was powerful. And (laughs) I think, like you said, you came back and you made this a precious book for me that I will always cherish just of the pictures and the stories. Uh, but then you went further than that. Uh, there were some things that inspired you. Why don't you tell us what else happened yeah. after you got back? So I, I was working on book number five before the invitation came to go to Normandy. I knew I wanted it to be World War II again because I love that era. I had part of the modern day. It's always um, split time novels that I write. So there's a modern day component and a historical component. And I really didn't know where the historical piece was going to go or where it was going to start. And um, in the fields outside, in the marshlands outside the town of Carentan one day, I came across a gentleman by the name of Tom Rice, who is also in the documentary, um, who jumped out of a plane on D-Day and uh, landed in those fields. And I wanted to write something about somebody like Tom. And so as I met all of these veterans, and again, as I got to look into their faces, one of the ones that is most impactful to me is Russell Moulaison. He's got a good French name. And there's just something about his face. I wanted to do honor, not 
only to the courage of these young men, boys, some of them at the time, but also to the conflict, the internal conflict that many of them lived with in the years following the war after they came back to the States. So that, that World War II piece of the novel came out of looking into those faces and hearing some of their stories and wanting to honor the complexity of surviving fighting in a war like World War II. And so that the modern day story connects with this veteran's daughter who is now 70 something years old, who never saw her father after he returned from overseas, who needs to know what happened that changed the course of his history and her history as well. So from there, the World War II piece just kind of flowed out of me when we got home. And what's the name of that book? It's called Fragments of Light. It's uh, everywhere you buy books, your bookstores, your libraries online. Um, and I just, it's, I love the book because it's connected to so many real people that I was able to meet because of the girl who wore freedom. Yeah. So guys, you've been listening to the story. Uh, you know, do you have any questions in terms of the actual translation piece uh, or just questions for what her experiences were like? Uh, <clears throat> you ask all the questions I had actually. <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, Christian's really good at that. Yeah. <laughs> You'd think she was an interviewer or something, wouldn't you? <laughs> um, I, I literally have a list of questions as we're going to oh, cross that off. Oh, cross that off. So, no, it's been it's been uh, it's been great, and I think for me anyway, I'll just say this: I, I appreciate having you on here, Michelle, because you you would think uh, having a translator would be a much more simple, you know, just a technical thing. You just got to check off the list. Uh, I didn't realize how involved it was and, and what a neat story for you uh, and incredible. what you got from it. So, yeah, so glad you could be on here. Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. And another interesting thing that came out of it, uh, I asked Michelle to um, write a few things. You know, uh, I asked her if she could take some of the, we've used some of the pieces, we've used some of her photos uh, sort of on our website and in our blog. She's written for us. So you can find some of those things there. And once she did write one of the blogs, I really felt like we could turn it into a video. Uh, and so we've now done that. We've turned this into a video. It's called, um, um, grueling glory, the march to Carenton. And uh, we have turned it into a short. And so my hope is the next thing that we will in, uh, enter into film festivals is this little short. I and have it features Tom Rice, right? Yeah. Who, yeah. who I met in those fields and who became the um, uh, military advisor for the novel in the weeks and months that followed. Yeah, it's, it was amazing. Can I tell you my favorite translating episode yeah. moment just before we go? I know that we're out of time. Um, if anybody has watched, seen the documentary, you've met Jean-Marie and his wife, Danny, is kind of the, the figurehead of, of the documentary. Um, and we were translating in their home one afternoon and I was off in the kitchen and um, you were translating in the dining room or the living room. And Jean-Marie was preparing lunch for everybody that day for whenever we were finished <laughs> translating. So I'm doing the usual clicking back and forth and translating. And every three seconds, Jean-Marie is in the kitchen with me, keeping his eye on the food. I've got a little plate of nuts in front of me. I've got some good hard French cider in front of me. I've got some red wine that turns up in front of me. I was the most well-fed person by the time we were finished with that interview. But it was his, you know, honoring the guest. And he was, he would giggle and he's just 
he's one of the many people who um, are so unique and so endearing that to meet them, even through the screen of your TVs or a, a big screen in a theater, you just can't forget them afterwards. Yeah, I would love to do a whole documentary just on Jean-Marie. Yes. I mean, he's yes. such an unsung hero in our film. He carries such a you know yes. light and a funny and a touching memory about the colonel that he lost. Yes. Um, but he... He was inspired by the very first paratrooper that he met. Uh, right. He met him and that paratroop gave, gave him gum. He went home and said he was going to become a paratrooper and his mother laughed it off, but he became a paratrooper and okay. then his son became a paratrooper. And you realize just one interaction and a piece of gum changed the course yeah. of the family's life. Um and then beyond that, he then went into work for, you know, the the Secret Service of France, which we won't go into. Which we're not supposed to talk right. about. <laughs> not very much. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that interaction when he was seven changed the course of his life. And so I'd love to do a story about that sometime. But thank you for coming on with us. Uh, you know, where can people find your books? Do you have a website? I have a website, michellephoenix.com, Michelle with one L, E-L-E, phoenix.com. Uh, but the book is available anywhere, even in your local library. It should be there. Um, yeah, it got a starred re review with the library journal. So most libraries probably picked it up and online. Yeah. And you guys can read her blogs on our website under the blog tab. And uh, there's, you know, several videos that she's helpful, helped us with under our video section on YouTube. So uh, check those out. And we certainly enjoyed having you today. Thank you for teaching it was us so much fun translation. And thank uh, you. Thank you for giving stories to tell by inviting me on the project. You are so welcome. <laughs> it's been our pleasure. We've loved having you a part of it. So thank you so much for coming. All right, Josh. Well, I think that's all the time we have today. Why don't you take us out of here? Okay. Well, again, Michelle with one L, thanks for being here. <laughs> and thanks to you for listening. Pleasure. The Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you could be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you so much for listening, for donating, and for following along on our journey. If you are able to make a donation this week, we would really appreciate it. We are supported by donors who give us $100 or less, so anything helps. Also, if you're able to share the news about The Girl Who Wore Freedom with your friends and family, please do that on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or email. And sign up for our newsletter at thegirlwhowarefreedom.com. Please go to thegirlwhowarefreedom.com slash donate to make a donation today.